Please grab your Bibles and turn them to Colossians 1. We have been in the book of Colossians at the beginning of this, this, uh, this church plant, and we are excited to continue as we go through this introduction here and uh, explore what Paul's trying to communicate to the Colossian church. We're in a series right now called Prayer Unceasing. And in this prayer, we've been trekking basically through the letter of Paul in his introduction, and we've gotten to the point where we are now in his prayer for the Colossian people. And this is a pretty interesting and fascinating part of the book. In his p- prayers to a lot of the churches that he writes to, he, um, will, he will communicate in his letters, rather, a prayer to them. And this prayer is for their commendation, their encouragement, and it's also for their understanding about what he is seeking from God on their behalf. And so what I would like to do, last week we looked at, uh, at basically getting into Paul's head and his heart. Why is he praying for the Colossian church? What is his purpose in doing that at a foundational level? And this week I want to start looking at the content. I want to look at two major realities that are in this prayer this week and next week. And my hope, really, and my prayer is that uh, as a church, these things would be transformative to us. Not just the content of the prayer, um, but the act of praying itself would be a reality that we embrace regularly. Um, so let's start with Colossians 1.9. And we'll go all the way through 12. It says this, And so, from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will, of God's will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. <clears throat> the purpose and mission of Risen Hope and if you've been here for a while, you've heard me say this multiple times. I'll probably say it a lot more. Uh, but the purpose and the mission of Risen Hope is very simple, and it's by design to be simple so that it's not easily forgotten and so that it's not easily confused. Risen Hope's purpose and mission is to know God and to show Him. That's why we exist. And these two major realities, these fixtures of what it means to be a human being, what it means to be a Christian, um, are those same ones that are mentioned earlier in this prayer. And uh, what I want to do is I want to spend some time looking this week at what it means to know God at a fundamental level. And why is Paul praying for this? And then next week, I want to look at the other half of that coin, what it means to show God and why how is Paul structuring his prayer to the Colossian, or for the Colossian church to God for them to know and understand this? These elements are obviously intertwined. There are, there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of um, connectivity between the two. And while we have time together, I want to spend some time just looking at how Paul's instructing and praying for the Colossian church in this letter. Um, so let's look closer at what he says here. We're going to look at, at just a, a section of the passage that we just read. He says, we have not ceased to pray for you, Colossian church, asking, asking God, that is, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, of God's will, 
in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him and bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So here's a roadmap for today so that you guys <laughs> can stay with me. I want to make sure that my meandering doesn't get you confused. Um, we're looking at three things in this, in this focus on what it means to know God. First, I want to ask the question of what kind of knowledge is Paul referring to here? What's the knowledge that he's referring to? Is there a kind of knowledge that he's referring to that isn't what we would immediately think when we think of knowledge? Number two is what does it mean to know God? What does it mean when the Bible tells us we need to know God? And number three, I want to spend a few minutes at the very end asking the question, how should we pursue this? Given all that the Bible is telling us about when it comes to knowing God, how should we pursue this? So from the passage I just read, it's pretty clear, at least one thing is pretty clear, is that Paul is asking that the Colossian church would know God, that they would know him, that they would know his will for them, and that in knowing his will, they would come to understand his character, who he is, what his being is. Um, and so the question we want to ask first is, is, in order for us to understand the kind of knowledge this is, we have to ask, what is the expected result? What is the anticipated result? And, and Paul tells us he wants them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And when we dig deeper, Paul provides even more information saying the kind of life that's fully pleasing to the Lord, the kind of life that is um, what would honor him is a life that bears fruit in every good work, a life that looks like you've encountered God and it's changed you at a very deep level. And so last week, we, uh, or actually a few weeks ago, we looked at this idea, this concept of bearing fruit in every good work. And we looked at it in verse six of the same chapter as we analyzed the, the, the transformative power of the gospel. Paul says at the beginning of this letter, he makes it really clear, the gospel isn't just preached to make people who don't believe in Jesus understand and embrace Jesus. The gospel is preached to believers so that in embracing God in Christ Jesus, through the cross, through the reality of the cross, we embrace a, a, a kind of reality that's so huge and so powerful that it changes us from the inside out, that we start to bear fruit. It's transformative. And this isn't just for the point of salvation. So to know God according to this passage, is to become more like Christ in the knowing of him. Now, there's another distinction that we need to make, and we talked a little bit about it last week, and it, but it bears repeating. And this is sort of the first part of our time together here today. This knowledge, from this passage, it's really clear that this knowledge is not a natural kind of knowledge. It is not intuitive and you don't necessarily get at it the same way that you would get at other facts of knowledge. For example, you can know many facts in this world naturally. You can understand and perceive things naturally and you can know them. Like you can learn how to drive a car naturally. I've been talking about my, my son's 11, he's gonna be turning 12. Had a conversation with Rachel about what it's gonna look like to drive him around. I said, maybe I could go to a parking lot. He's, I don't want him to be nervous when he's 16. So. 
Maybe I could teach him at a younger age to do that. And she says, no, that's against the law, so I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, we'll figure it out some other time, Liam. Um, you can learn math naturally. You can learn astronomy naturally. You can learn how to bake cookies by someone teaching you natural physical facts about cookies and about how to cook stuff, and you can learn that. There are things all around us. Most of this world is understood and perceived from a natural perspective. In fact, you can know every fact about this book completely naturally. You can know every single thing in this book naturally that it's telling us. But that isn't what Paul's talking about. There is a kind of knowing, and I'm not saying that you do throw this book away. There is a kind of knowing that is different. Um, Paul isn't talking about a natural or physical understanding. And we know this for a few reasons. We know this because the text tells us this. Paul says about this knowledge that he's praying for them to receive this knowledge in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. Paul doesn't want us to be confused. This isn't natural wisdom. This isn't natural understanding. These are spiritual insights. The things that you're going to learn about God and know about God are spiritual in nature. They're not natural. They are, in fact, supernatural. In addition to the kind of wisdom he states, let's just consider some stuff about what he's saying here. Let's consider his language. Paul is praying to God for this to happen. That should be a clue. You tend to pray to God for things that aren't naturally possible or can't be achieved by human resourcefulness. He's praying to God. He's not expecting, he's not telling the Colossians, listen, you need to figure this out. You need to drum this up. You need to figure out a way to know God. He's, he recognizes that this knowledge comes from another source and he's praying. Even look at his language. His language is that you may be filled he wants the Colossian church to know God, but he recognizes that it needs to be a filling from God and not simply them looking up a few facts and getting them right. The word filled means that the Colossian church isn't actuating the process. They aren't providing this for themselves. It's coming from an external source, God. God needs to step into the picture and God needs to acts here in order for them to get the knowledge that is happening, which means that this is a supernatural event. Now, the reason this is so important to see is that I want you to know, I love this book. I give my life to this book regularly and spending time in this book, and I commend that to you. But I want you to know that it isn't simply, knowing God here is not simply about getting a few facts right about the Old Testament or getting a few facts right about the New Testament. It's not even about knowing Jesus right, or knowing the rules and the, the, the design that God has for how to live our lives. It's not about that necessarily. Anyone, anyone can know those facts, and they can get them right. And many do without ever really knowing or experiencing God at the level that Paul is looking for here. Paul's not simply talking about knowing facts, the kind of knowing here is profoundly transformative. It changes you at the very deepest parts of who you are. And this kind of knowing is central to the Christian life. And Paul is desperate for the Colossian church to be saturated in it. He wants them to know God. He wants them to know who he is 
and he wants them to know what he desires and feel inclinations and affections toward achieving that goal. He wants them to know in such a way that they begin to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. They walk in a way that fully pleases him and bears fruit in every good works. This is an amazing kind of knowing. This is, this is very, very different. And so what I want to do is I want to shift now from what kind of knowledge it is, since we recognize now that this is not an, it's not an expected or anticipated intuitive kind of knowledge that we have in the world. This is supernatural. And I want to ask... Well, at least at the very beginning, ask this basic question. What does the Bible mean when it says you need to know God? We're praying for you to know God. I think it begins at the very base level with knowing his name. Because name in scriptures means not only the person's actual nomenclature, the person, what you call them, but it means the reality of who they are, the gist of what they are about and who they are. And so knowing God's name is important. And what I want to do is I want to turn to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 6, to look at this. It's going to be verses 11 through 14. Let me provide you with some context. So after God faithfully brings the people of Israel out of Egypt, and he brings them into the promised land, after long periods of them needing to trust him and believe in his promises, he brings them into the land that was given to their father, and having lived there for a period of time, they begin to turn away from him. Despite him, despite him rescuing them from slavery, he, they begin to turn away from them, him, and they begin to be infatuated with other gods and what these gods can promise them. They, during this period, don't acknowledge God the way he is, and they refuse to trust him and to live in accordance with what he's, what he's designed for them. And therefore, God looks out across them. And interestingly enough, he doesn't immediately execute judgment. He doesn't come down and set them straight immediately. What he does is he sends messengers. He sends people from among them to tell them, turn, repent, please come back to me. I love you. I want you. Come back to me. Turn from your sin and repent. Ezekiel is one of these. Jeremiah is another one. We'll look at him later on today. But here's the deal. God knows that they're not going to turn back. He knows it. He even tells them he knows it. Because he recognizes what's at the core of them that's broken isn't that they don't know what's right. He gave them the rules at Mount Sinai. It isn't that they don't know him and he hasn't shown himself to them. They are in the promised land that he promised them. The issue here at the core is that they don't know God. They don't know him like Paul's talking about. They don't know him intimately and they don't know him as their provider and their God. And so we see in Ezekiel, the people of God turning away from his grace, turning away from his loving kindness, and refusing to know him. And God's response to this constant refusal is severe. Ezekiel 6, 11 through 14, it says, Thus says the Lord God, clap your hands and stamp your foot and say, Alas, because of all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence, 
He who is far off shall die of pestilence, and he who is near shall fall by the sword, and he who is left and is preserved shall die of famine. Thus I will spend my fury upon them, and you shall know that I am the Lord when their slain lie among their idols, around their altars, on every high hill, on all the mountaintops, under every green tree, under every leafy oak, wherever they are offering, wherever they offered pleasing aroma to all their idols, and I will stretch out my hand against them and will make the land desolate and a waste in all their dwelling places from the wilderness to Riblah. Then, then, they will know that I am the Lord. That's intense. And that is severe. And if you don't think it's intense and severe, you should read around that chapter, and I promise you, you will become very aware of its severity. There are parts not too far from this passage that would make the hair on the back of your neck stand on end. God is very, very serious about getting their attention. He says in verse 13, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And then at the end, then they will know that I am the Lord. This can, it can be easy for us, I think, to look at a text and for us to say, that's too much, that's extreme, and that's an overreaction. I think it's a fair response to hearing about this. That's an overreaction. Our feeling and my feeling of whether or not it's an overreaction is probably in proportion to my understanding of whatever is at stake here. What is at stake? Why is God so serious about this? For people to ignore the Lord and refuse to know him, is that such a serious offense that people need to die in order for it to get a just response? What is so critical, so important about knowing the Lord? In the book of Ezekiel, there are about 70 different instances where Ezekiel provides almost the exact same statement. So they will know that I am the Lord. The Lord. And you'll see the word Lord and sometimes God in all caps. The reason you see it in all caps is that it's not the Hebrew word, the original language, for Lord. The Hebrew word for Lord and Master is Adonai. And this is not that. This here, anytime you see in the Old Testament, Lord in all caps, or God in all caps, you are looking at, in the original translation, the divine name of God. This is God's name. So, for example, God isn't his name. Lord is not his name. <laughs> Just like human isn't my name. I am a human but human is not my name. My name is Jeremy, and God, our Father, has a name, and his name is Yahweh. Most theologians believe that it's pronounced Yahweh. And you know this already, because you've said the word hallelujah before. Hallelujah is praise be to Yahweh. And it's important to recognize this, this, word, this word, this four letters that represent God's name in the Hebrew language are called the Tetragrammaton. And if you look across the Old Testament, you'll see this word 
everywhere. Now, the scribes, when they translated this, they didn't want to dishonor God's name at all. So they changed it and would put Lord, or when they changed it to the, when they transferred this to Greek, Lord or God, in appropriate sort of correspondence to it. They didn't want to use God's holy name in the Hebrew in another translation incorrectly. And there is a great level of reverence for this name. But I want you just to think about that, just the fundamental aspect of this, that God would use a human construct like giving names. We take it for granted, I think. And that he would deign to come down and say, hey, listen, I want you to know. I have a name and I want you to know it. I want you to know who I am. We see this in Exodus 3. Exodus 3, 13 through 15. Prior to the people of Israel being rescued by God, God comes to Moses and says, you're the one I'm going to send to them. And he has a variety of objections to this whole idea. And one of them is, hey, listen, they're going to ask me, I just want you to know, they're going to ask me who you are, what your name is. What do I tell them? And this is the passage that outlines that conversation. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? All the Egyptian gods have names. What is your name? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, you see all caps there, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So God said to Moses, you want to know who I am? You want to know who I am? You want to know me? Here's my name. I am that I am. That's Yahweh in the Hebrew language. God is saying here, when he gives his name as this phrase, I am that I am, (laughs) that his existence is absolute. He is absolute reality. And everything else in the cosmos, everything else that we have outside that is beautiful and wonderful and graciously given to us is contingent on him. It relies on him for its very existence, its composure, and it is derivative. It is an outflow of his intrinsic glory. And all of it compared to his substance is really a fleeting shadow. He is saying that I am that I am. I am Yahweh. Everything else is other and I am absolute. I'm the anchor for reality. This is my name forever and thus I shall be remembered throughout all generations. He wants people to know his name. And in knowing his name, we know fundamentally who he is. The reason knowing God is so critical and knowing his name is so important and significant is that we know everything else rightly when we know God. If we don't know him, we we have no baseline for our understanding of reality. We can't know anything rightly. We can't understand the world around us because we don't know the one who made it. We don't know the one who sustains it every millisecond. And we don't know the one for whom it is made. 
He is, God, our God, is Yahweh. He is the meaning of all things, and only in him does anything really have full purpose. So knowing God is, and I say this with with great seriousness, it's the most important thing anyone can do, not just a Christian, a human being. And it's not just knowing of him. It's not just knowing facts about him. It is knowing him intimately and passionately. If this God is who he says he is, then knowing him is more than simply understanding a series of facts or statements about him. It is in a very real way being embraced by his fullness, being convicted by his fullness. It is like the kind of knowing that you have of your spouse. You know everything about them. And, and they know everything about you. And you know them in such a way that there's certain things that they know about you that you don't even know. It is a deep knowing. Knowing God is not getting a few facts right. It's about seeing God in his supreme glory and cherishing and treasuring him for who he is because we were made for him. And so Paul, going back to the Colossian passage, Paul is asking in his prayers for the Colossians, he's saying, Father, fill them with a knowledge of your will. Fill them with knowledge of who you are. I don't want them to have a small view of you. I don't want them to see only part of you. If they could just see you as you are, if it could even be a glimpse into who you are, I know, I know that it would change them. Paul knows that these are Christians in in Colossae. He's not confused about that. He explains that earlier in the, the chapter. He knows that they love Jesus. He knows that they trust Christ. And he knows that they love the saints and they hope in the, in, the, in the hope of the gospel. He knows all of this about them. And what he's asking right now is for the reality of who God is to fill their hearts completely. And if I'm honest with you guys, Risen Hope, that's what I want for us. I want and I pray for that the reality of God, the unparalleled, unobscured, unmitigated worth of the person who created us and redeemed us through Jesus Christ would be poured into our hearts and we would be overwhelmed by it. We would be transformed by it. I want us to see him. But here's the deal. Um, Paul isn't the first person to pray this for the Colossian church. And I'm not the first person to pray this for Risen Hope, and, and none of us are really the first person to pray this for Risen Hope. Somebody else did this a long time before the letter was written to the Colossian church. Jesus Christ a few hours before his trial and execution, prayed for the Colossians. And he prayed for risen hope. Think about that for a second. The Son of God, before any of us were born or even a thought, prayed for us individually. Like he knew who he was, whose was his. He prayed for his people. John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life 
that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is praying for them to have eternal life. And he's defining eternal life. He says, you want to know what eternal life is? I'll tell you what eternal life is. It is knowing the only true God and knowing Christ Jesus. This is eternal life. Eternal life isn't a bunch of spirits floating on clouds. There aren't any harps in eternal life. Eternal life isn't even, despite some movies, green pastures and fields and sunsets and paradise, ultimately, though they may be shadows of a greater reality. Knowing God at a fundamental level, which is what Paul is praying for the Colossian church to experience now, is eternal life. It is a foretaste of eternity. Do you want to know what eternity tastes like? Jesus is saying, it is being swallowed up in the unsearchable riches of the reality of God. That's what it means to have eternal life. It's to get a small even shallow, but real piece of eternity right now in our lives in order to whet our appetites for what's going to happen later. Paul knew this, and he knew this primarily because this was his experience. Paul knew Christ. He knew him. He spent most of his life hating him, and then he met him. And then everything changed for him. He knew Jesus Christ and was overwhelmed by the knowledge of the one true God. So Paul, a Jewish Pharisee, <laughs> who pretty much had everything needed, he needed in his life. He had all the requirements. He had everything going for him. Meets Jesus, everything changes. And then he describes the economy of his affections in Philippians 3, verses 5 through 8. Let's, let's look at this. He's going to say, okay, let me list for you all the ways in which I was a good Jewish believer and was a part of the people of Israel. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness and the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, Whatever gain I had in all that stuff, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything, everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ everything, all things. I put no limitations on Paul here when he says all things, and I put no limitation on him when he says I count everything as lost because Paul doesn't do it for us. To Paul, everything the world could offer him was infinitely less valuable than knowing Christ Jesus. He'd seen Jesus with the eyes of his heart, and he couldn't go back. At that point in his life, from then on, Christ was gained and everything else, whether good or bad, was counted as loss. 
Now, don't hear me wrong. He isn't saying we need to dishonor our commitments and our relationships and ignore the people God's brought into our lives or the things that we've been called to do. He's not saying that at all. What he is saying here is that the right place, the only right place for Jesus Christ is the center of your life. He is at the center. If Christ isn't the center, if the Christ is the center of reality and everything you value and love in this world will be valued and loved rightly and appropriately because he is the anchor of the cosmic span of our lives. So Paul is saying here, I count everything as loss. I I count it all as loss and I, I would discard it all completely. Even the good things that I love in this world, my family, my friends, ultimately, I want to know Christ. I am addicted to Jesus. My eyes are fixed on my Savior. And that addiction to Jesus Christ, to knowing him and loving him, is called eternal life. To know him is for him to be your passion and your treasure. Our delight in God should not culminate, ultimately, in the forgiveness of sins, which is amazing that we can have the things that we've done to dishonor God forgiven is an amazing gift. But our delight in God shouldn't culminate in that. And it shouldn't culminate in a painless eternity. As good as that is, as amazing as that is, it shouldn't culminate in just the fact that we're not going to experience pain anymore. Our, the culmination of our delight comes in knowing Jesus Christ and his Father and having this knowledge embrace us forever. I'm going to read one more passage from the Old Testament. This passage is a promise of the new covenant, the new promise that God makes with his people. It's a promise that when Christ comes, the knowledge of God will come with him. And I want you to listen to the way that God, talking to the prophet Jeremiah, describes the new covenant, this new promise. (laughs) This is in Jeremiah 31. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will, I will personally put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know Yahweh, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares Yahweh for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Praise be to God. They shall all know me from the least to the greatest. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. May they increase in the knowledge of the living God. That's what Paul's praying for here. He's praying for them to be filled with what Jeremiah is talking about, what Ezekiel is talking about, what Jesus is talking about. Paul is praying for the Colossian church to be filled by this reality, to know who God is intrinsically, The greatest act of love God can do for anybody is to commend himself, the greatest treasure in the universe, to us. To our understanding and to our affectionate embrace. 
And this was achieved on the cross of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus died to pay for. The knowledge of God for his people purchased by the blood of Christ. We're going to be worshiping in a few minutes and we will take communion. If you're a believer, please, I ask that you take communion. And I ask that when you do that, you recognize that communion instituted at the Lord's Supper when Jesus was inaugurating the new covenant and bringing it into fruition, that this act on the cross, his body and his blood given for us, was what it cost in order for us to have a knowledge of God. So when you take the elements, I ask that you would not take that for granted. I ask that you would consider it and contemplate it and think, this is how we know him because of what he did 2,000 years ago. And it affects me today, every day. Briefly on application, I want to spend just a few seconds on this because I think a lot of the stuff we talked about will give you some ideas on how to apply this. How do we pursue this as believers? How do we grow in our understanding and our knowledge of God? Well, the first thing is pretty clear. We pray. We pray. We do what Paul did. We pray for this to happen. This knowledge, for sure, does not come by us refusing to read this book and ignoring it. We are not zapped with the knowledge. We spend time looking at this book and we pray. We ask God to open it up to our eyes. The eyes of our hearts would see it and embrace it as true so that we could see the glory of God in it. And we pray and we ask for a miracle to happen. We ask for a supernatural event to happen. That he would be the first thing I think of in the morning. And that before I close my eyes and fall asleep, he would be the last thing that comforts me. And that throughout the course of the day, through all the busyness of schedules, he would saturate my mind with an affection for him, a desire to know him. We should do our best not to try to fit God into our schedule, but to take our schedule and to wrap our schedule around who he is and spending time with him and developing our affections for him. That knowing God would be our highest and our greatest goal as people and followers of Christ Jesus. And I'm praying for you guys, for all of you, that he would grant this to you, that we would taste a little bit of eternity now in his gracious filling of our hearts with his knowledge. Let me pray real quick for us. Father God, you are everything the Bible says you are. You are the greatest reality in the universe. There is nothing like you anywhere. And so for us to be drawn to other things and pursue other things greater than you is foolish. It's silly, Father. We shouldn't feel those impulses to be drawn to things that don't honor you. And we should take our lives and wrap them around who you are. And so I'm praying right now, Father, that in your gracious power and in your mercy, you would do what Jeremiah prophesied you would do you would write the reality of who you are, your desire, your will, your purposes into our very being at the depth of who we are and that we would be trans transformed, that we would bear fruit in every good work and Father, that we would increase in the knowledge of God, that we would increase in knowledge of you in Christ Jesus and Father, that it would shape our lives, Lord, that we wouldn't be the only ones blessed by this, that it wouldn't terminate 
on us, but that it would overflow and that our actions, our passions, our desires in all the different relationships we have and all of our different obligations would reflect a, a devotion and a supreme comprehension of the greatest thing in the universe, God, our King, and Christ Jesus, his Son. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.